guest on this episode is Angus Munro. For those of you who don't know, Angus was born in London and is a multifaceted dyspraxic indie singer, songwriter, musician with a five octave range which puts him in league with Mariah Carey. He grew up in Scotland and toured the country taking part in workshops, open mic nights and stand-up evenings which led to him being scouted for gigs. In recent years he has performed on BBC Radio 4's Loose End programme and has been heard on Radio Scotland. He has also toured across Great Britain, Eastern Europe and North America. Hi Angus, welcome to the podcast, how are you? Hi Billy, uh, I'm good, thanks Thanks for uh, having me on board. No worries, whereabouts are you at the moment? Are you in Scotland? Yeah, I'm in Edinburgh. Oh. I've been living in Edinburgh for ooh, three or four years now. Brilliant, and then um, did, you, did you live uh, somewhere else in Scotland before that, or was you always...? Yeah, I, I, st- I went to uni in Glasgow at Strathclyde, so I was there for about four years, and then I hung out for another four, and then... Um, as work saw me go through to Edinburgh and I've always loved going to Edinburgh so it's kind of a no-brainer to stay yeah lovely lovely and uh, if you could Angus uh, please would you mind telling us about your childhood and how you came to learn about having dyspraxia while you diagnosed young right well um well when I was a baby um I always showed the classic signs of being dyspraxic clumsy you know Um, not particularly good the numbers um, I remember I remember being told by my mum years later when I asked her um, about going to primary school or nursery and they would there was a discussion as to what to do with me for primary school and it was I think some I don't know who they asked specifically but my mum it was whoever was sitting down with, with my mum suggested that I go to a particular school for special needs students. And uh, my mum was adamant that I were to go to a normal primary school with my sister um, who was already there. And um, I was mainly on, under the guise of, he just needs assistance. He doesn't necessarily need, you know, to be pushed around the chair or to get any kind of special treatment as it were. And so um, I went to primary school and essentially, I don't want to go through my whole life essentially um, in one big long answer, but (laughs) it was a case of at the beginning, I did find it quite difficult. And then I was assigned um, an assistant, like a a teaching assistant, a special needs tutor. And um, it was a woman who was assigned to me from, I think, God, maybe primary one. And she's become one of my closest friends. I'm, I still talk with her quite regularly. Um, she's very instrumental in me to sort of getting basic grip on holding things or like bouncing on a beam or writing or attitude. I became quite frustrated when I couldn't do um, basic functions like writing with a pencil or a pen would always hurt my hand. I would do that for only a short period of time, it would really hurt. And so she would, you know, calm things down. It's all all right. Um, We would walk me through getting like triangular pencils or some kind of um, extra time on a lesson. These things, I sort of, it sort of became norm for me. But uh, over time I did get better, or I guess got more competent with 
school life. I guess with with primary with primary, I really owe a lot to or my early development. I really owe a lot to that teacher. Yeah. Um, I I really do. And then I was sort of weaned off it in secondary school, and to the point where I had to go in the deep end and just not have any assistance. And that was difficult, but at the same time, because I was able to flail around, I was able to kind of get a grip on what I was doing. And it was really instrumental to me to understand that I will, there's certain aspects of dyspraxia that I will always have. Like I've gotten better at writing, you know, as you get older, you get better at writing things. Um, but my hands still hurt if I do it for a prolonged period of time. And I will still have, I would still be incredibly clumsy. I am very clumsy. Um, and it was only until the past couple of years where I've kind of become okay with being clumsy all the time or at peace with myself with being a bit dyspraxic. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's funny as well, because I was always told that I would never be good at sports. I would never really do some kind of manual job simply because the coordination was really bad. And I've ended up making playing piano and singing part of is my career. So it's, it's kind of flying in the face of everything <laughs> I was told not to do. Maybe that's why I've done it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that is essentially the long and short. So, so when did you, um, when did you stop getting the, the help or, or that teacher in particular at primary school? Did it, did it stop? Did it cease to exist when you, once you left primary school or? Um, I, it stopped. I had, I had various teachers based on this teacher's availability. Right. And some are better than others. Um, but I really got help. I, I think it stopped for me. I think before I moved to Scotland, so I would have been 12 or 13, the decision was made not to pursue any more teaching assistance and he can do this. Oh, so, okay. so did you find it a, a, an easy transition to have help and then no help or like in average? Re relatively. Now th this is me sort of like thinking back. Yeah. You know, 20 plus years, oh my God. Um, I did... I did have some help. My mum was hugely instrumental to me sort of remaining calm while I was getting frustrated with certain things. And she was in very supportive of all my endeavors. And my dad was too. Um, so it, re it really was a case of um, just too bad to find something, you know, to help it work. I, I had always been told about exercises where you sort of touch your fingers, your thumb with each finger like this and you constantly do that and I always fidget yeah. I still fit and um I keep being told not to do it and I've never stopped I don't care um <laughs> I'm 30 now I'm still fidgeting um able to pay my rent and stuff so yeah that's not really stopped me at all <laughs> <laughs> so there are elements of dyspraxia which are still around but I still um I still go ahead and just tackle things head on really with, with a basic understanding that it'll it's always a part of me but that's not necessarily a bad thing it's just part of who I am I don't make excuses I think when, when I was in secondary school started secondary school I did make excuses and that is quite embarrassing when I was think I, when I knew I had to talk about Spraxy today and I don't really talk much about my upbringing because there's not many people I speak to back then anyway um, 
I did re remind myself of moments where I would not do as much PE or get additional help when I don't think I really needed it. I think I was just used to the fact of having help, but that was entirely, that's entirely my own fault. And when I look back on it, I eh, kind of cringe. I'm like, Ugh, I could have, you know, I could have done that um, marathon that I was being asked to do, but I said I couldn't be asked because I had dyspraxia or I was told not to. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's, fun, it's funny how my brain is sort of sat with dyspraxia from being a kid to being a teenager to now being an adult. It's, it's gone from, I need the help, I don't need the help, to I may need the help sometimes, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you touched on it just a minute ago about the, the move to Scotland when you were uh, 12 or 13. Um, yeah. how, did, how did that transition go for you and your family? Did it, was it, um, it obviously, we don't like change relatively uh, normally as a dyspraxic. Did that impact you or that's like um, for a while? It didn't, it didn't really impact me that much. I, I wasn't really having that good of a time at the school I was at in England anyway. Right. Um, my sister was in Scotland. My family is Scottish. My mum's from Troon and my dad was from Trieste, uh, North East Italy, but his family are Scottish. So um, it just made sense for us to move up closer to where uh, my family is. I have quite an extensive family and I'm quite close with them all. So it, was, it seemed like the right idea at the time. And I still think it was. Um, and it, well, it wasn't necessarily difficult. It was just different. We'd living in London, in the yeah. suburb of London, than to go to sleepy town of Creef. Um, it's it was it, yeah. There's it's, there's an impact, but at the same time, I wasn't actually going out and clubbing either. I was I was playing video games, running around the woods. So I'm playing the piano, and I could have done that anywhere where there was woods. So. <laughs> Did you ever feel like, did you, when you moved to Scotland, did you ever feel like going from like living in like a, being like a, a big fish in a small bowl to becoming a, a rather small fish in a big bowl? When, when it's yeah. different in size of people and the way they do things there. For sure. The, class, the classes I went to at school were a lot smaller. The town was definitely a lot smaller. But I was, I was a very anxious child. I was very nervous. And so I wasn't the greatest at socializing. Um, and so to have less people, that was great. But it was still, I still had problems with social anxiety and stuff all the way into my twenties. Um, so it, it wasn't really a case of big fish, small pond in that sense. Yeah. But in terms of number of people, in terms of where I was living and my surroundings, absolutely. It was very different. Okay, okay. And uh, when did you feel that dyspraxia started playing an impact in your life? Like, when did it start to get, like, did it ever get to you? And, and if, if so, like, how, how did you sort of uh, remedy that? Was there any, like, coping strategies for that? Um, it really, dyspraxia really started kicking my ass at, um, I think, at the beginning of primary school. When, 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 I, when I was a kid, when I was like a little baby baby, um, I became deaf. I had a glue ear. Yeah. And I stopped talking. I stopped being able to walk and go downstairs and I had to get it sorted. And once I had it sorted, I had to learn it all over again. And ever since 
I don't know whether it was before then or after that doctors stayed in touch with my mum or my mum was like, okay, it's, it's not just glue, it's something else. He's just a little bit meh. Um, turns out my dad had the exact same thing. Um, but because he was born in 1952 and he grew up um, in an army background, it's not something that was really at the forefront of the conversation at all. So he was just clumsy. Uh, when he played football, he would just fall about all over the place. So they nicknamed him Spaghetti Legs. Um, and I sometimes think about when I'm walking, when I walked on a bouncing beam or whenever I was doing some kind of sport that I was also Spaghetti Legs, I wasn't able to um, get my brain to do what my the rest of my body wanted to do, you know, or the rest of my body to do what my brain wanted to do. Um, so very much in sports, in concentration and thinking, it annoyed me, but that really came to the forefront of my consciousness as a problem when I was in my early 20s, like when I was in university and trying to figure things out for myself and really figured that there's a reason why I'm not able to concentrate. It's not ADHD, it's, or I'm not able to factor this through, I'm having a problem with this. It's not just because I was seemingly coddled from an outside perspective when I was younger. It's very much part of how certain dyspraxics um, think and process things. Yeah. And once that became, once I became conscious of that, I was able to apply it to the rest of my life and going forward. And that really helped, you know, just being aware of there's a reason why I've done a thing. It's not an excuse. It's just a reason. So don't lose your nerve and keep, keep your head down and keep going. And yeah, that was a big, big help for me. So yeah, those two moments specifically. Okay. And you said that you touched on uh, losing the ability to walk, talk and communicate. When did those skills, when did you learn to get those skills back? Did it take a while or was it relatively easy? It took, it took a while to get back. And that was when I was at primary school and uh, it was with my teaching assistant. She would take time during PE and we would do exercises. We would just call them exercises. Yeah. And it would be rubbing sort of like um, one of those orthopedic or chiropractic rubber balls with um, the bumps on them. Okay. And rubbing one of those on like the sole of my foot and sort of getting used to the feeling of my foot and it walking. Cause I used to be toe heel, toe heel. That's how I would walk. I wouldn't go heel toe. I would always go down the stairs sideways. Like, I don't know if you see a film from my, the thirties or the forties, hello Dolly. And then you've got the, the big staircase. Da -na 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 -na. And then the woman's walking down the stairs. Da -da 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 -da. And she would walk sideways. That's kind of how I would walk down the stairs. I didn't, think, I didn't think I was Hello Dolly. I didn't think I was any of that. But that's a good way to describe what it looked like. Yeah. And I didn't really... And it was just a case of different exercises with this teacher and my mum following it up and just constant, incessant, are you doing your exercises? Let's do this. Let's do that. It really helped pave the way. And when I was, um, when I would sneak away to play the piano at school, I would incessantly do it. I, there wasn't really a, a stopping. I would have to physically be told to stop. Um, and I just loved doing it. And that was really instrumental, uh, pardon the pun, to actually getting good with my motor skills. 
on my hands. It's like, I didn't know how to use my left hand when I was playing the piano. I didn't know how to play the piano. So I just forced myself to do it um, in private. And then eventually I got good. So, and I think that really helped me with actually holding on to things and my proper motor skills outside of music. Okay, so so when you was trying to regain the ability to, to like walk and talk, etc., did that lead to social isolation away from, like say you was getting help in PE and stuff? Would that have meant you was away from other class classmates or the fellow pupils, etc.? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. I mean, we, we tried to, it was, it was tried to be implemented during classes and I had some good friends in primary school who were very supportive. Um, I remember going to secondary school. There was a particular moment, it's quite, quite cringy, uh, where we were doing gymnastics. I used to be very, very good at gymnastics as a kid. I have two sisters and they wanted to do gymnastics. I was roped into doing it. And as it turns out, I was quite good. But then I became aware of my dyspraxia and I started playing it up, I believe, early secondary. Um, like maybe the first half of my first year. Yeah. And um, yeah. rather than a, an assistant coming to help me with, I think doing a forward roll, I kept really messing it up quite badly. Um, rather than have someone help me out, this school gave me some crash mats. And... Uh, it's, it was like, a, a, it, it was a crash helmet. It was like a motorcycle helmet. And the motorcycle helmet had stars and stripes a la Evil Knievel. I, I kid you, <laughs> it was real. And I remember putting this on and having to do forward rolls, being incredibly embarrassed. Um, and I was like, I'm pretty certain I can do a forward roll. But it was mandated by the school that I had to do something about my dyspraxia. And they didn't really know what to do. So it was like, here's a crash helmet, here's a crash mat. Go nuts. Um, so that, that's, that was, that was the, one of the only times I remember being like, Ugh, I just, I, this isn't very wholesome. I don't think I'm learning anything other than I don't like this. Uh, but things improved when, uh, it wasn't part of the conversation at school when I moved to Scotland and they just essentially said he could do his own thing. If he needs some extra time and some work, that's fine. But he's got this and he can learn to do it. And I did. Oh, brilliant. So you so said, did you ever like, uh, so you didn't have any like mental scars from the way that crash course, if you will, uh, was put upon you. you? You kind of embraced it and went with it, I suppose. I mean, the, there may have been, but I've, but I've learned to live with it myself. Um, I, I don't have flashbacks. Uh, I, I don't have any form of PTSD in terms of how I was looked after. I did have an excellent yeah. teaching and um, amazing parents who helped me out whenever they can and could. And yeah, some supportive friends and musical was a big part of me getting through these problems as well. So no is the answer. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to think of a way to say it. <laughs> no, I, I got through it. Oh, that's brilliant. So you've gone on to appear on national radio uh, performing and had radio interviews in the press and you've toured across uh, Great Britain, North America and Eastern Europe and you've even done the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Have you ever felt that there's more pressure on you specifically because you're a dyspraxic song, singer-songwriter or mm -hmm. has there ever been any extra pressure on you? 
it's I've that's a good question um it's it's never really been a part of the conversation um I've never made I never made a deal about it until I was asked um if I wanted to talk about it um I didn't I don't know that many didn't know that many dyspraxic people when I was starting um or people I looked up to I think I knew two Florence Welsh from machine Daniel Radcliffe both, both have dyspraxia and I was like oh cool but it's it was never really a part of the conversation I was self-taught at the piano and I was always constantly told I wasn't doing the right things um so that was certainly a part of the conversation I was doing my own stuff very heavy left hand because I didn't really want to have a guitarist in the band and I was like I'm just gonna smash the hell out of the piano uh the earliest days at least and it ended up being just a part of how I played the piano, just my regular style. I wouldn't really say I was, I'm that good of a piano player. I, I, I say I'm an amateur piano wrestler because I'm essentially wrestling with what the hell I'm supposed to be doing every gig um, in some form of amateurish way. But people have said that they like my style and that's very heavily borrowed from artists who are much better than myself. Um, but dyspraxia has never come up it's it might show up in certain themes of songs which i've written but i i try to stay away from writing 100 percent about myself um when i'm doing songs yeah you, you've had you've had uh, one uh with you if i can remember rightly i think it was something like um it, it was it was quoted as if billy joe had a brain that's how yeah. it sounds that 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 that's quite like in a way it's staggering because as a dyspraxic our brains are wired differently so it's, it's kind of like, um, I, I find that quite sincere and emphatic, that the fact that you might, you've been compared to Billy Joel, but they're saying if he had a, if he had a, a brain, it would, it, would, it would be you, basically. That's quite, a, that's quite an accolade, isn't it? I've not actually thought about that quote um, in the way that you've done it. Uh, yeah, it is quite nice. Uh, a, a person who was doing a bunch of gigs I was working on very kindly said that about my first yeah. single, and I asked if I could use it and it was like, absolutely. And um, I didn't realize just how much of a big deal he was until he said it and he's done all these shows and played with like Bob Dylan and, and uh, blah, 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 the Ramones and others. And yeah, yeah, it was fun. I've never really, I've never really put dyspraxia in that conversation. It, yeah. it, was, it, it was only when I was, I was asked by a newspaper I think last year, the year before, to talk about my dyspraxia. And I said, what the hell, I'll happily talk about it. And it surprised a lot of my friends and um, some of my fans that I had it. And some people were like, oh, I've got that. And so that was nice. So it's, I would only say in the past two, three years that I've really talked about dyspraxia on a public forum, um, simply because it's not really, it's not really been a huge stranglehold on my life. I've sort of come to terms with the fact that I am clumsy and there are certain things which I just are completely out of my control. But um, I've, I've learned to live with it and see that as part of my personality. But I also understand that I'm, I'm certainly not mega superstar famous, but there is an element of, there are fans that like my stuff that if I have, if I open the door with this conversation, it allows them to talk about it some more yeah. too. Like I've, 
in my last record, I talk a lot about mental health and that became part of the conversation with a lot of people, with me. And so I thought maybe I could do the same with dyspraxia. Certainly won't write a whole album, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, you, you never know. But yeah. So, so who, uh, who or what sparked your interest in performing and eventually singing? Any inspirations? Um, my first record that I had was um, Songs for Swinging Lovers by Frank Snatcher. And my dad was very upset because he had all of Len Zeppelin records and Steely Dan, and he really wanted me to go down that road yeah. uh, of liking his particular music, which I do, I really do. But at the time, I just loved this guy's voice, and it turned out that I could copy it quite well. And so I was really into mimicking what I heard. Um, because I wasn't able to do a lot of sports, listen to a lot of music, watch a lot of cartoons. Um, turns out I was quite good at the old drawing and mimicking sounds that I heard uh, without having a guitar or piano in front of me. So I gradually just moved towards mimicry. And so I listened to a lot of Sinatra. I grew up listening to tapes of The Goon Show, which is a 30s, 40s um, BBC radio program of Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe. And so far, I'm describing my life as if I grew up in wartime. Um, <laughs> but those were the two things I listened to. And in the middle of the Goon Show, every episode, they would have um, Max Gildray and Ray Ellington, like two musicians, one's a harmonica player, and the other one was a band leader. And they would sing these standards. And I loved them. I loved them so much. And it's the fact that these songs can be really catchy and really grab a hold of your gut in like a minute or less than a minute and the song's only halfway done i loved that absolutely loved that um and yeah as i got older really gone into sting um harry Connick jr the phil collins genesis uh ben folds five was a big eye-opener for me everyone at school could play the guitar uh i couldn't really play the guitar that well because it really hurt my hands yeah. Um, maybe that's the distracting thing. My left hand, I couldn't get it calloused quickly. My hands would be very tired. But with the piano, I could just smash the keys. And that's exactly what Ben Folds and his band would do. So I kind of just kept going and wanted to be a piano singer-songwriter as opposed to a songwriter um, who played the guitar. And that was my that was my goal for some reason. I don't know why I was so anti-guitar. Maybe because I thought it was cool. It really wasn't cool. Um, uh, th those those initially were my first kind of like inspirations with Sinatra and then Sting for Collins and and then got really into the nitty gritty of songwriters like good songwriters Leonard Cohen um, oh, Jimmy Webb um, Paul McCartney these people who can just Nick Lowe is a, a huge inspiration for me Nick Lowe is a producer for like Elvis Costello's work and his own stuff. And um, he just has this knack of just making songs so quickly. And these tunes hit the choruses within 30 seconds. And I love writing the shortest song possible, which is ironic because the last couple of records I've done, the songs almost go to four to five minutes. Um, and in the past 10 years since I've had them written out, ready to go, I keep songs short to like three minutes, two minutes. Um, I love the exercise of just being taken on a journey that's only a minute to two minutes long. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was 
that yeah those those musicians in particular are a big deal for me so so when you got conscious of that's what you wanted to do i read mm. that you got yourself um stage confident as in went and did open mic nights uh stand yeah. up yeah. comedy was that something you did as a did you have an intention of doing those things in the future like or, or was that just to get you more confident on the stage well, definitely to get me more confident on the stage. I, I wanted people to hear the songs I'd written. And I was like, I'm just going to do it. I, I remember being in school in Scotland and getting an opportunity to sing. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask if I could sing a song. And so I asked if I could do it. And the teacher was like, absolutely great. A boy wants to sing. This is great. And I sang and it, my friends thought it was quite good. It was kind of embarrassing. Like if I look back at it now, I would never ever tell myself to do that because it seems like social suicide <laughs> to, to go and just be like, I'm going to sing in front of everybody at high school. What a great <laughs> idea. Um, but at the time, I just wanted to do it. And it was a small town I lived in and there wasn't really that much space for it. And I was like, I'm just going to do it. Fuck it. Um, and so, sorry, can I swear? I didn't mean to swear. Yeah, I was fudging. No worries, didn't hear it, that's all right. Fuckity fuck fuck, there, it's out. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was, yeah, off the back of that, I would just go and attempt to do as many open mics as I could and try stand-up comedy. I was terrible at stand-up. I'm really bad. Uh, and as I got older and forced myself to go out on stage, I got calmer on stage. And I got better at being able to talk and speak in front of people and just chuck in the old joke and be a little bit more self-effacing. The fact that whatever I say isn't funny and then the band behind me are like, this sucks. And then my response is always the funny thing. So it's, it's that awkward element of being on stage and attempting to be funny. It's not funny, but then my response to my band is funny. It's, it's kind of like a tete-a-tete -tete that I have. Um, I haven't really put any thought into. <laughs> I think that's people mistake that for stagecraft. It is not. I'm just still trying to attempt to cover up any silence with a joke. Uh, but yeah, I would just throw myself in those situations because I felt I needed to in order to get better. I've always noticed um, people in bands, uh, like like the, the singer, like the back the band, would always make jokes out of their out of their like backing singers or people in the band like just making up like I said um killing time or waiting for instruments to get up on stage so you kind of in a way you whilst you're on stage as a singer you also you've got to entertain a crowd whilst there's dead air or moments you're waiting yeah. for. so is that is that something in mind as well where you're kind of like conscious that you don't want to be standing there like a lemon and you just want to absolutely yeah. i i used to panic about that all the time um because a minute or at least 10 seconds on stage with their silence, it feels like a minute, it feels like an hour. And you feel like you need to say something to fill the silence. And I was bad at that initially, but I got better. The more I did it and the more feedback I got, and I just became more relaxed. So when I do solo shows now, I don't talk too much. Uh, I do let there be silence when I'm talking about things. And when I'm writing songs and walking through people on how to write songs i always mention silence is an amazing tool like uh it's it's underutilized it can really pop whatever you're trying to say beforehand like if you make a statement and then you just leave a couple of moments silence, or just let the music 
act as a pause, as a breath, uh, while you're having a conversation, that it works wonders. And it's the same with chat, <laughs> I guess. So, yeah. so, say if you're on stage uh, performing a set, uh, do you have do you have a set playlist in mind, or do you do you, do you and your band sort of do whatever you take your fancy? Or do you, we build we build up um, a set beforehand and then yeah. I, I show them what I got and they're like, you should do this or scrap those two or that works. Let's move these two songs around. Um, so yeah. And sometimes if it's a big enough show, I tell the band to F off for three songs. And so I can sort of bring the mood down, play like three brand new tunes that no one's particularly heard because the process of making records for me takes a long time. Yeah. Um, I don't want it to take a long time. It's just is what it is. Um, I I allow sort of like unheard tunes to be played at gigs and yeah, and it helps bring the mood down. And then after that, we'll play a slower song and then we'll build it up again. Big finish. Ta -da. That's yeah. So it's a collaborative effort. The set list. <laughs> I, I can imagine. And, and do you ever like get, find yourself uh, say you've got an agreement with the band that you're going to play these songs? Uh, and do you ever stumble onto another song they don't know you're going to do, or do they like, jump ahead of each other? I used to do that. Uh, I don't want to put words in their mouths at all uh, yeah. by saying I no longer do it. But um, I'm pr I'm pretty I'm pretty certain that I don't do it anymore. Maybe like I would say eighty three percent certain that that doesn't happen anymore. Um, I would have to ask them if that's the case. I'm sure they would tell me the complete opposite, and then I'm a terrible terrible band leader. <laughs> and, and do you find yourself like I don't know how your um, take is on stage with a microphone do you hold it, does it stay, do you have a stand or I when I'm playing keys I tend to sit down or stand up playing keys and smash stuff off it and I've got my microphone just there okay when I'm working with other bands or when I'm there's no keyboard in front of me I definitely grab the mic and then throw the stand to the other side of the stage um, because it's a barrier between you and the audience and it doesn't necessarily need to be there. Yeah. I also like running around on stage, off stage, kicking stuff over because it's an excuse. It's an excuse to act out. And it's it's a fun show. Like I, I did shows on Mondays at this bar called the Jazz Bar in Edinburgh, which is currently closed, obviously. Um, and um, it would be on Monday nights and I made a specific point to go completely nuts on a Monday and just like run on the floor lie down, run with my legs so it looks like I'm doing a donut, like Homer Simpson or the Free Stooges, where they go whoop, 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 and it's like running with legs and you're going around the circle. Break things, push stuff over. That was a blast. And if someone's seeing that late on a Monday night and they're just like, oh my God, that's crazy. You know, whilst they're um, going through uh, the UK and they make a stop in Edinburgh, that's like one of the more rat memorable nights they have. I get messages from people fairly often random people on Instagram being like, I saw you at the jazz bar four years ago when we returned to the UK and we were just like, that's nuts. And I was saw a video of that and I was reminded of that and I just wanted to let you know, uh, it's cool. And that's, re that's a really nice thing. But um, yeah, yeah, definitely make a point to break stuff and run around the stage and the crowd if there's no piano in front of me. If there is a piano, then I guess the audience are relieved. They don't have to deal with me. <laughs> Up before you get hit. <laughs> um, I'm just going to skip back a, a, a few years. So, how did you? How was sorry? How was your childhood? I'm, I'm asking every guest this question. 
Uh, was it relatively stress-free or was it traumatic for your parents? I, I don't actually know, to tell you the truth. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I should probably ask my mum. I certainly, at the beginning, I wasn't a quiet child. I do know that I was very noisy. Um, that is a pain in the ass to deal with. Uh, and I guess if that indicates anything, then I guess maybe I was difficult. But as, as I got, but then quickly I quietened down um, and was just a good, good little boy, I think. Uh, as opposed to childbirth, though, I'm, I'm really not sure. I, d- I don't know, but I would, I'm inclined to think that I was a little bit difficult seemingly because a lot of my early childhood was difficult based off factors beyond my control. Right. But again, that's me assuming, so I'm, I'm not really sure. So I, I just find it interesting how a lot of people either know a lot or they don't know nothing about their childbirth. And obviously, we weren't mm. we, we was there, but we weren't there in a way. So it, it totally. really isn't like our interest, I suppose, to find out. I suppose, unless someone wants to tell you for two hours about how you came out. And, you know, it's not really... Uh, oh, I, I don't really want to know about my one, to be fair. It just it wouldn't really interest myself. Yeah. Um, so in, in 2019, you appeared in the Metro newspaper as one of the top acts in London to see that at that time. You came in just behind Take That, I believe. Uh, I, bet you was over, I bet you was overjoyed about that um, press. I totally forgot about it, actually, until you brought it up. <laughs> um, and yeah, that did happen. I remember getting ready for a gig. It was, it was in Edinburgh, I believe. Or maybe it wasn't. Um, well, I was jumping between the two. Last year was quite busy for me with the record coming out on vinyl and um, getting opportunities which I had not had before. Um, and so it was nice. I've been doing this for quite some time. And so to get some form of recognition uh, was cathartic. It was, it was nice. It, it's, I'd, I'd had some help. I'd recently signed up with um, management for the first time and uh, a really good management for the first time. And um, it was a big, it allowed me to focus on writing more and just relaxing and thinking more about the things which I'm good at, which is writing songs and playing gigs. And so all the initial elements, newspaper cutouts and press that I was getting was awesome. It was, it was really nice. It was a big surprise though, because I don't tend to think much about promotion. I tend to think mainly about the product I'm making and um, when am I going to perform it? And I wouldn't say I'm the greatest at juggling tasks. Uh, maybe that's a dispraxive thing. I don't know. But um, either I focus super obsessively on one thing and then jump to another and then focus obsessively on that. Like I used to think obsessively over promotion and marketing and then I would stop writing for a while and then I would focus on writing and creative aspect and gigging and not focus on promotion when you have to marry the two in order for it to work. Um, and so now I have someone who helps me out with that and I've gotten a little bit better with organizing myself. So, um, when I saw that Metro thing, that was very cool. Uh, I was like, huh, oh shit, it's all coming together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that's one to wake up to read the paper and online. Mm. You're like behind take that and you're thinking, okay, I'll have that money as well. Thanks. Yeah. I remember, I remember picking up the paper actually. It was cause it's the Metro. It was on the bus and I'm just yeah. picking it up and I was like, Oh, oh shit. Then texting people and they're like, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Next. <Yeah. laughs> mm-hmm. You know what they say? Um, 
one day's newspapers, next day's uh, chip, uh, fish and chip paper. Yeah, yesterday's news is tomorrow's fish and chip paper. That's the one, that's the one. Yeah. It's a classic. How did you get to, uh, how did the uh, call to Europe, Eastern Europe and uh, North America come about? Um, well, North America, I very much, um, I had two musicians who I met doing open mics in Scotland. And I said to myself, I was like, I've always wanted to go. I've never been, I'm going to just ask these venues and maybe these people can put me up. And as a result, the places, a lot of places I messaged didn't care. <laughs> they didn't reply. And then some friends of mine helped me get some spaces. And so I was like, well, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So a very good friend of mine and myself, um, we both flew out to LA and then we traveled and then played New York. Um, and that was a blast. That was, oh, that was, that was in like end, end of February, beginning of March. So it was LA's like winter time, which for us was like super scorcher summertime in yeah. um, Scotland. And in New York, they had like some of the worst snow they'd had in years. And that was amazing. Um, I very much want to go back. I'm still, I'm still in touch with one of them. Um, she actually ended up moving to Edinburgh and married a guy here and they have a kid and she's an incredible songwriter herself. And so, uh, that, that was a joy. Um, and with Eastern Europe, um, I think, I think it's more Western Europe really, cause I've got a bit of a fan base in Germany. Uh, when I was younger, I had, well, I still have some very good friends who live out there and musically either completely by accident or just coincidence, I would always end up with a gig in Munich. Um, and the Germans have this, well, most Europeans have this policy, not even policy, it's just ingrained of friends are hanging out. What do you want to do tonight? Eh, there's a guy playing a gig downstairs or the venue. Let's go. They don't necessarily need to know who it is. They don't necessarily need to have five of their friends uh, show up and drag you along to see a show. They just want to have a good time and hang. Uh, I think it's a Danish saying, Heger, like H-Y-G-G-E, which is kind of just very wholesome just to hang out. You can go to the local Tesco or Netto, as it's called over there, yeah. pick up a six pack and just drink it on the side of the street with your friends. And you don't have to go to a pub. If you did that here in Scotland, you get arrested. Uh, uh -huh. If you do that in Germany, I think the cops seem to give you a thumbs up. Um, maybe not now because of distancing, but... Um, yeah, and so I would go and I would always be blown away by support I would get in Munich and in Austria. I played Vienna a couple of times. Um, that was a case of a musician who had liked my stuff. I liked his. We both had a similar style. And I was like, gig swap. I go over to Vienna, you come over to Edinburgh and Glasgow. We did gig swaps and it was a joy. It really was. And um, yeah, I just keep finding my way back to Germany. Um, <laughs> once every year, once every two years. Um, and I don't know why. I absolutely love love the Germans. They're the greatest. I, I keep trying to learn the language and I'm terrible. I, I can't really get it in my head. Um, but uh, I pick up some things. But yeah, that, that, that's my experience really with America and, and Western Europe. It's just a case of I did it all myself when I was starting out because no one else was doing it for me and just asking people and 
I had faith in what I was doing was good and that people would like it uh, above most things. And um, as it turns out, they did because I keep being asked back. So, have you found yourself getting what other dyspraxics usually get? Is like mental and physical fatigue. Like, and does it does it come um, heavily when you perform, or, or are you okay? Does it does performing take it out of you in that respect? Um, when I'm performing, I get a huge rush of adrenaline. I'm always nervous when I do a gig incredibly nervous, but I've learned to sort of harness that nervous energy and uh, spew it out on stage. Um, and then there's an, the high you get from playing a gig well uh, is better than any uh, I've ever known. So to that, I always ride off that after a gig. Um, I'm, I'm normally buzzing afterwards. Like I can't really go to sleep. I've, I've got to hang out and see everybody and, that's not really changed from when I was younger. Um, mental fatigue. I mean, I used to, I get mental fatigue if I'm doing too much maths. I hate maths. I always have. So um, I can't be a house with maths. Uh, but it's, other than that, it's never really affected me. I, I believe I have a relatively mild form of dyspraxia, I think. Yeah. Because I've certainly seen cases where it's a lot heavier. And I've, I've, because I'm in touch with my teaching assistant friend, that she has had other students who, who are far more difficult than me and having their own issues. Uh, so I guess in, in those cases, I'm quite lucky to, to have had the support and um, I, guess, I guess the mental capacity to sort of look after myself and be able to look after myself mentally. Um, but yeah, yeah, I am lucky with that. Nice. And with the uh, current pandemic, you've had to stop mm-hmm. touring, obviously. And yeah. your uh, scheduled event at the Edinburgh Fringe this year was cancelled, as was the whole festival, of course. Um, do, you right. have a, do you have a clear um, plan of what you're going to do after the pandemic, or is that off the table at the moment? Well. I, I keep being asked because I organize gigs and stuff for other people. And I keep being asked when gigs are going to happen again. Yeah. And I have some people being like, Oh, we've got this drive-in gig in September and we are doing this thing here and there. And I keep telling them that gigs really will kick in again, early 2021. And it's, everything is totally in flux in terms of what we're doing. We're being told one thing and it's actually the other. And um, you have to be very conservative when it comes to, when you will be able to play again. So it'll be great if I get to play at the end of this year. I would, I would very much love that. I highly doubt it based off evidence and what we're seeing. So um, Scotland has been doing excellent. So I'm, um, so I'm kind of more optimistic that things will change sooner up here than down south. Um, but we also don't have two mega cities as part of our country. Like where you guys have Manchester and um, London, yeah. respectively. So that obviously brings the numbers up. Um, in terms of performing, I'm still I'm still doing live streams. I've gotten into live streaming um, during the pandemic, and that's been a saving grace for me. I still get to play. I am I'm able to speak to my fans probably more than I did beforehand. I would do a gig and see them. Now every fortnight I do um, a live stream on the Friday, every second Friday of the month, first or second Friday of the month. And um, 
I, I ask them, what do you want me to do? And so they give me a bunch of requests and then I have to learn it and then I play it and I get to chat with them. And it's, it's great. There's like a constant dialogue at gigs, but in my house it's, and it's in theirs and I'm not really pretending. I'm just kind of myself just doing my thing. And uh, recently I've gotten back into songwriting and teaching more. And that's really been great in terms of writing. Um, so in a way, before the pandemic started, I was always, I've, I've been a full-time musician for the past decade. This has been my job. As soon as COVID hit, yeah. uh, I lost all a year's work in like two weeks. It had disappeared. Um, so I had to pick up some odd jobs and I did um, and still do. But then what really was great was being able to do these live streams and sort of take five minutes to reassess everything and yeah it's kind of been a blessing in disguise really sort of i've been able to sort of plan out the next records and know you know to take time out i'm not having a gig every weekend i'm not having to do this or plan this just take a deep breath um and so in a way i've been quite lucky i have lost pretty much all my income <laughs> that's not good but what is good is my own mental well-being um and so and being able to talk to fans more often than than before i'm i'm very grateful of these streams and what's happening because now i get to um never take it for granted again beforehand i would just see them in the show and now i get to message them every day and they can talk to me and yeah, it's it's a joy. It really is. Ah, oh, that's, that's nice to hear that you were uh, on reflection. It, it's um, it, the lockdown has actually done wonders for some people in terms of reflection. Yeah, I mean it's it's a huge it's a huge slap in the face. If I mean it's it's either one or the other. Really, you can either if you're in a really poor mental state before, you know, just wait till you see COVID nineteen. It's and being in lockdown everything was exacerbated to the nth degree and you know you don't need me to tell you um that but i'm i'm a big proponent of cbt and cognitive behavioral therapy and um being positive and sort of assessing things and if you're feeling sad allow yourself to feel sad and if you're feeling good give yourself credit for feeling good because you deserve it, you know? And um, I've been doing that for years and I guess I have, if something really irks me, it doesn't irk me for too long because I, I allow myself to feel crap for like 10 minutes a day until it gets to a point where I'm exhausted of feeling crap. Um, but I also tell myself to feel good every day and um, or to reflect back and, that process has really kept my mental health squeaky clean, I, I guess is one way of putting it. So yeah, yeah, yeah lock, lockdown kind of has been a blessing for me. Nice. You, you, you've had um, in, the, in, the, in the press, you've, you've touched on um, trauma that you've experienced in the family um, with, with a great loss. How, yeah. I won't ask you to touch on that, it's private, but in terms of the help you had with mental health afterwards and to the present day, we touched on the CBT treatment. Do you find that the help was there or would you say the help could do with like being up like in terms of for everybody in the country? Well, for me, for me, the help was there. I, I sought it um, once it happened. Mm. Um, 
long story short, my dad suddenly passed away and um, we had no idea yeah. as a family. And he was my best friend. I didn't have that many friends. So for me to have this big thing to nothing was uh, devastating. And so <clears throat> at the time I was dealing with some stuff anyway, and I was like, well, I'm going to go see a therapist. Luckily I was in university and there was a program where I could see someone. And um, I went back and forth for a number of months and then they recommended me to a private therapist. Yeah. Um, so I did do that. And then off the back of that, they were like, well, this sounds like this and this, and you should take these. Um, and after I stuck with the program they gave me and as a result, um, yeah, I was able to think clearly and be aware of my emotions properly for the first time in my life after that um when i would sing and talk about mental health uh i think it was 20 2013 was when my first record came out um yeah. or my ep when i would sing and talk about it from critics initially and from radio people they were not happy that i was talking about mental health they weren't um i don't want to name names because that's kind of crappy and it's not fair because i kind of know some of them and they're really great people and what they do is important and sure they have since changed their minds but about mental health but at the time it didn't seem to them it didn't seem right that sort of rock and roll or pop was talking about you feeling sad you know and and it was just a case of what was me or this i think someone told me it was too raw i should not be talking about this because it's too raw and it's not for me. And they were one of the only people who probably would have been able to give me a boost in Scotland. So I was kind of just stuck. You know, yeah. I was like, great, because I talked about mental health. I now have no future doing pop music. Um, and I should feel bad. And I, I got quite bitter about it. I don't know if you can tell my voice <laughs> or the fact <laughs> that I'm talking about. Um, but then I, I learned to let it go. And then an opportunity arose where I was asked if I wanted to expand on the EP I made and to put it on vinyl and add some additional songs and expose it to more people. And so I was like, absolutely. Off the back of that, the same people who said it was too raw then said, you know, this is really good and it's important that you say these things, not realizing that they had told me the complete opposite five years prior. And so that was really funny for me in a very sarcastic kind of schadenfreude way that, you know, they were now talking about certain aspects and certain artists, important artists who had died, um, who had taken their own lives. And it was now a case of mental health was now part of the conversation, especially yeah. with me. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, one of my records was being held up as this is a great example. And it was being held up by somebody who was completely flippant of all of the tracks on that record by free that weren't even there five years before because it wasn't part of the conversation. It's, it's amazing to see how quickly that our opinions can change. You know, once we have more examples, once it hits closer to home, I think was it Ronald Reagan's wife. I, d I don't know what American politician, I believe it was a first lady, but, uh, Nazi Reagan. Nancy, yeah, it was Nancy. I think they have a son and their son was gay, I think. And I think so, yeah. And then she immediately turned heel. Like she was initially very anti-homosexual in terms of 
any policies, getting in the military, getting in, you know, AIDS rights, blah, blah, blah. As soon as her son was gay, you know, she actually has a place to understand um, that she was being prejudiced. And it was a case, I think it was a case of bigger and better, more famous artists than myself was starting to struggle and um, in the public sphere. And as a result, it hit those people more. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird thing. It's 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 a weird analogy. It it doesn't really match. I'm I'm, def, I'm definitely not Nancy Reagan's son, and um, but uh, it was funny to see the difference between me talking about the same problem, yeah, within five years, and the difference between this is too raw and you should feel bad about talking about mental health to this is important and I'm really happy that you're talking about mental health from the same persons. Yeah, it was, it was, it's really strange to see. Yeah. I'm, I'm really pleased that they, they saw, um, they saw, they, they quickly changed their minds and realized that it actually does a lot of good by um, using your, your art as such to speak your, your mind and about how the world is. And it's, it's refreshing to, to hear someone else's mental health um, and how they've embraced it. And it's, it's always it's refreshing to hear that the, the record industry is maybe, maybe is on the turn now and is willing to sit down and go, right, maybe it's a good thing that we, 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 that we put in songs rather than all you hear about is the pop and the, the glamour. What about the, I'll say it, the shit and the, the, the bad side of it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's plenty of high-profile male artists. Like James Bay was one who wrote songs, and he was accused of writing sad boy music. That was the term that was used. And then, over the course of the 2010s, mental health starts becoming part of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, in particular, with men, and um, and then all of a sudden, his quote-unquote sad boy music is legitimize and he has a right to say these things and it was and be popular and i think it's it was it is interesting to see i'm glad things are changing for the better but i think we still have a very long way and i think it'll only stop when it's not really having to be brought up in a conversation it's just that's the same the same goes for anything the same goes for civil rights the same goes for um gender rights the same goes for many things in music you know it's the fact that it was the many that started talking about it that record companies thought okay this is kind of what people want then perhaps our presenters and our um our sort of speakers on behalf of companies should be reflecting the opinions of the public themselves yeah definitely definitely so what help didn't you have growing up or in your early adolescence that you wish you would have had, but couldn't have. So say as a dyspraxic, was there something you really wanted growing up other than a teaching assistant, say? I, I was very lucky. I had a teaching assistant and supportive parents. Um, yeah. I don't think I could have wanted any more help than what I got. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I could initially ask for any more. Okay, that's uh, nice, nice yeah, what I, what I had was essentially the bare minimum. It was just like a group of people who I would see on a monthly basis, uh, which yeah. is like, how are your exercise doing? Great, here's some new ones. Um, 
And it was that, and it was the consistency of that every month that, um, and with the teaching assistant every week that helped me specifically. That's, yeah. that's kind of the bare minimum, really. You shouldn't be coddled too much, but at the same time, it needs to be consistent. Yeah, that's my experience. Certainly, certainly. So what, what's your hopes for the future in regards to the world of dyspraxia and hidden disabilities and mental health, per se? Um, well, it, it, goes, it goes back to what I said about it being increasingly more part of the conversation. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that it comes up, you know, whilst you're having dinner, can you please pass the salt or so I'm dyspractic? You know, it's, it's just part of, if it becomes as, as aware, people are aware of it as they are of say dyslexia, which sounds quite similar. So when I say that dyspraxia, they're like, what, you can't read? And I'm like, that's not what dyslexia is, but yeah. you know. Um, if, if it becomes more and more part of the conversation, then that is essentially all we can hope for, really, because as, as um, I guess, as shown with James Bay and with my record in a way, the more that people talk about a topic, that the more that these institutions that kind of sway public opinion, I guess, um, yeah. will talk about it and then it will become normal, normalized. Um, and you, yeah, I mean, you, you, see, you see that this year with the Black Lives Matter movement, which had been around for ages. And it's the, the fact that it was the news. It was the topic for so, so long that it became part of the conversation. And so people are still talking about it when they normally wouldn't, you know, or places where they wouldn't talk about it that much. And it's, it's the same with any kind of disability or mental health or any kind of stigma. The more that people talk about it, the more, and incessantly talk about this thing, the more it will appear um, as part of the conversation and that it should continue to be part of the conversation. So it becomes less of a stigma and more of a matter of fact. So you, you could say, it's like, oh, I only have one leg and you're just like, meh. You know, within your group of friends, if you've known them for so long, and you know the fact that you have one leg is not that big of a deal. You know, it's yeah. Yeah. so if that makes any kind of sense. Um, if yeah, people talking more about mental health and sort of doing doing that kind of thing, it's less of the elephant in the room. We shouldn't talk about it. I hope he's okay. You know, it's it's part of. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Cool. Just letting you know. I love you, man. That's fine. My, a good point which sort of encompasses all of this is uh, my group of friends, um, kind of outside of music, before, like maybe in 2010 or whatever, really wouldn't talk too much about mental health. We would just have yeah. fun with each other and just gig and blah, 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 blah. And by the end of 2018, we would just message each other. It's like, not chatting to you in a while, just letting you know I love you, man. Hope you're okay. And it's those, what would normally be quite an awkward text to say to another man, we would just do anyway, because it was important. It was being discussed everywhere about mental health. And I get that started permeating our own chat and our own conversations. And I'm starting to see that with other friend groups and people I know and complete strangers just saying, you know, hope you're okay. They yeah. genuinely mean it. They're not just saying it because, you know, they want the conversation to end. They're just like, hope you are okay. And the fact that that has happened in the space of under 10 years is crazy good. Um, so yeah, hopefully with mental health, it's the exact same thing. 
and dyspraxia especially that it just becomes part of the chat yeah marvelous marvelous and uh, where can we find you on social media and also where is your music online please right uh you can find me on instagram at angus munwo that's angus who and then an a at the end um munro's m-u-n-r-o i have a website to angus munro music i've got the facebook twitter you search for angus munro you will find me um i've got all my records on spotify and bandcamp um i do fortnightly live streams on fridays at 7 gmt uh and i think on the 28th and the 29th of august I, because the edinburgh fringe isn't happening i'm a part of the beer 52 sort of virtual festival i'm going to be playing some songs and i'm doing a new one as well and that's on their website that's beer 52 um and that's on the 28th and 29th of august nice and have you got uh you touched on it earlier about your records about your albums and lps have you got another one lined up or is you working on another one right now or i've i've been writing another one for quite some time um and i've found the time during the lockdown to write even more um so once it gets lifted again and i can actually start working with my team once more um I can start making moves on about crowdfunding the next record because I've, I've never crowdfunded a record before. Every record I've done has sort of been off my own back and money that I've been able to save and work at. So, um, yeah, I obviously still intend to do that, but hopefully with this next one, it could be bigger than the last. So uh, here's hoping. Nice, nice. And I uh, just personally would like to thank you for been able to partner up with me early doors which is basically help for you um endorsing my work it's been i really i really did appreciate that last year when you when you promoted my channel that really uh, meant a lot and i couldn't thank you enough thank you. and also thank you for, for joining us today uh, we admire you for your bravery and speaking so openly about your life and career and mental health whilst living with dyspraxia uh, we wish you all the best for the future angus Thanks, Billy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you having me.